Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of musicians who create with an air of mystery, but who have a fantastically straightforward chat here, Ethel Kane and Adam McKilwee. Ethel Kane is a character created by Hayden Anhedonia, the one that's sort of been all-consuming. Now, Anhedonia began releasing music under the name in 2019, finding her sound and her vibe over the next couple of years before releasing the absolutely epic Preacher's Daughter in May of last year. The album, a concept collection about the life and ultimate demise of Ethel Kane, skillfully moves through sounds from a sort of gothic Americana to slowcore to ambient to who knows what exactly other than that it's thoroughly engaging. The album was pretty quickly hailed as a masterful debut and Kane found herself not only the darling of the music world, but with some prominent modeling gigs as well. As you'll hear in this chat though, the spotlight has gotten a little bit bright for her taste lately. She's currently on the European festival circuit, though she'll head back to the States in October for sold-out shows at really interesting venues. Check out a little bit of Crush right here. Kane and today's other guest, Adam McKilwee, go way back. He was an early supporter of her music and appears on her inbred EP under his most prominent alias, Wiccaphase Springs Eternal. Though he started his musical journey as part of the pop-punkish band Tiger's Jaw, he's moved in a dozen other directions since. He founded the emo rap collective Gothboy Click back in 2012, which briefly counted Lil Peep among its members. As Wiccaphase, though, McKilwee combines synth pop with more acoustic sounds and more hammering beats depending on the track. His latest release under the name is self-titled, and it just came out in June. It's well worth checking out. In fact, check out a little bit of the song Moving Without Movement right here. I know it doesn't seem to hurt a lot, I assure you I'm in pain. I can feel the window whispers rolling in, it's a late one. I'll welcome you in, baby, to the max and to the core. I'd invite you in to stay. On hollow ground, I'll stand around and you haunt me, and I wouldn't mind. Now, for two people who've created such interesting mystiques, this is a refreshingly down-to-earth conversation in which they talk about trying to carve out space as middle-class musicians who don't expect to conquer the charts with their music, but who'd love to be able to make a decent living at it. They also talk about what to do when you hit a touring wall. This chat took place not long after Kane fainted on stage in Australia, and how great Vic's steam inhalers are for singers. Hey, Vic's, you might have a couple of spokespeople here if you play your cards right. Enjoy. Hey, where are you? I just got to LA. We're doing a couple festivals out here. What about you? I'm stuck in LA for a little bit. I was supposed to fly out multiple times yesterday and every flight got canceled. So now I'm at a hotel by LAX. Somebody sent me a picture of you on somebody's story here in LA. Were you like playing a show? I did play a show on Friday, oh, Saturday, Saturday. Okay. Yeah. How was that? I think it was good. I was like, uh, jet lag, like, started to hit, like, maybe 30 minutes before I was about to play. Jet lag is such a silent killer. Whenever we, um, we went to Australia for the first time, like, a month ago, and we played the first show, and then we played the second show, and I, like, passed out on stage. I just completely dropped. That's exactly the point when I went to Australia, that, that it hit me to, like, tail end of the second show. 
And then the promoter, I don't know if he advertised this, but I was never so ready to get off stage into an Uber, like back to a hotel, you know? Yeah. So I was like getting my stuff backstage. And then I heard him start to tell people like, Okay, like we'll let one person in at a time for photos. So like start the line outside the green room, which I didn't know anything about. And I think that was like the biggest diva moment I ever pulled where I was like, yo, I cannot do this. I remember whenever we did our tour last summer, like my very first tour ever, the very first show, we were in like Bloomington, Indiana. And I was so anxious and like stressed about starting tour. I had no idea how it was going to go. And so... um I remember meeting with fans after the show and I like they were lined up and they just kept coming like every single one of them kept coming and I was talking to them and I got so overwhelmed that I wound up telling one of them I was like can you excuse me for a second I ran out back and I threw up in the street I was just like I this is so out of control (laughs) did you go back I did go back and I finished and then I met with the rest of them I have a a cousin and he saw me in Detroit once and like that phenomenon happened where like people started lining up and he, um, you know how like some people, if they like don't fully understand like underground music or small shows or something, they just kind of assume that they're going to a concert and like the concert experience, regardless of whether it's Lady Gaga or Wicca phase is the same, right? Like that's how, that's how my cousin is. So He, like, really couldn't believe that I didn't have security for, like, this, like, 200-cap room that I was playing. Yeah. Like, personal security. So he started acting as my security and was taking the pictures for people and telling them, you know, keep in a straight line and you get one picture and and he takes the picture and that's it. It was kind of nice of him. Yeah. But also a little embarrassing. People just, in any kind of situation like that, have this tend to, a tendency to kind of mob in a way like if one person's doing something they're like okay let me get over there and do the same thing so if one person takes a quick photo with you suddenly before the photo's even taken it's like there's 50 of people and then you're like oh my god I'm gonna be here till four o'clock in the morning I always wanted to talk to fans on our first tour and do that because I was like oh that's like that's a good nice thing to do but I realized even if I was talking to fans and being kind and staying behind for them, that puts my entire team out because they're all waiting around until 4 a.m. for me to get done. And then we're all getting back so late and we're none of us are sleeping. What do you do? Like, say you're like a week into tour and maybe this doesn't happen to you, but like you start to feel like your voice going or something like that, or you've just like hit a wall. What do you do? I don't ever know what to do. Like, I I don't even know what you can do. I really try lately to sing the best I can and from a place that's not going to, like, destroy me. Like, I'm like, if I know I have another show tomorrow night directly after, I don't push as hard the night before. I don't try to hit a bunch of crazy notes. If I know it's, like, the last show for a week, then I'll kind of go crazy and have fun. I wrote most of my songs to be kind of in like the most comfortable part of my range. So I don't have to do anything crazy. And if there's any songs that are super difficult for me to sing, I either just don't do them on tour or I do them in a way that's very kind of restrained. um, So I don't blow my voice out. It's so crazy because when you're pushing yourself vocally every single night, it's so common and easy to just completely lose your voice so it's kind of like a stressful but unavoidable part of tour in a way yeah that's what stresses me out most about tour 
is like hoping that I can like want like make it through with a voice intact. And, and normally what happens is there will be a, you know, midway through the tour, there will be a period where I'm struggling a little bit. And then it's just like adjusting the set or whatever. And then by the end of tour, it, it comes back um, pretty fine. I just get stressed. I, I'm like, man, I hope no one flew to the show where I know I'm not going to have a voice or I hope this isn't yep. someone, the only time someone's going to see me. Oh, there's nothing you can do. I lost my voice pretty bad um, for two days on the last tour that I did always in Seattle. I get like sick every time I go to Seattle. I got one of those Vicks steam inhalers. Those, those are great. They're, They're so great. great. How come they don't advertise more? I don't, to singers. singers. Like, yeah. They should. They could like, they need to do like, like sponsored partnerships or something because they're so good. I remember one time I played the show in New York with my friend Chris and it was at St. Vitus in New York and the green room is the basement and the basement was at the time not to like air out St. Vitus but like the basement was full of black mold and um and we like could not breathe in the basement and we had to get one of those like Vicks inhalers because we were in this basement for three nights in a row, breathing oh in God. black mold and could not breathe. It was crazy. Yeah, they should advertise towards singers and uh, people who are forced to be in moldy basements. Did you play your festivals yet? I played one in San Diego. We leave for San Francisco in, I think, like three days. Um, and then we're going to Seattle for the third one. Which, I love Seattle. I've never really had a problem going there. But then we're going to Europe. This is kind of like the Europe month where all those festivals are happening over there. So um, that'll be cool. I'm like not the biggest fan of Europe. It's always kind of a hassle getting over there. And then I'm very much a homebody in the sense that I like to know how everything works and yes. what everything is. And I like to know the rules because I'm super neurotic. And Europe is like... I don't know the rules at all. And so I'm just super frazzled the whole time I'm over there. But it'll be cool. It'll be really fun. I'm I'm going to get to see some friends of mine I don't usually get to see. So that'll be nice. I like that you said you like to know the rules. I, I like to know the rules, too. Yes. I'm a big fan of safety. Yeah, I'll get into trouble at home. Like if I'm <laughs> if I'm like by my house, I'll maybe be a little bit of a bad girl. But um, yeah, when I'm across the I'm in another country, I'm like, OK, let me not get arrested on like foreign territory yeah. <laughs> how many people are in your band performing uh performing crew there's just three of us three okay i have me and my guitarist and my drummer and then my manager is also my tour manager so it's just the four of us traveling all the time and then um you know occasionally if we can swing it for like a big show maybe we'll have my friend matt will fly in to do bass i have a question for you about management too if that's all right i only yeah. had two two prepared questions and, and we're on the second one now. <laughs> um yeah what's up because you are like you're with it you know what i mean like just as a person you're you're like an adult right i don't get the the impression that you need a babysitter ever or anything like that right and I feel like that's the role that managers often have to play. Um, it's not the only role they play, of course, but like yeah. for some artists, that's why they have a manager. How do you and your manager divide responsibilities? I used to have to run everything myself. Like, you know, obviously before having a manager, before having any kind of team at all, you know, I, I was having to make the music, like write it, produce it, mix it 
upload it to distribution services and do all the the artist stuff. But then I was also having to book my shows, book my flights if the shows weren't local. You know, I was having to run my social media accounts. I was having to worry about, you know, my stats on Instagram and Twitter. Like I was having to do all this annoying shit that was kind of driving me crazy. And so when I started working with Marley, I kind of was just like, you're good at this. You're good at the logistics. You're very smart and you're very quick on your feet and you're very savvy. Take all of this. And I kind of gave her the role of babysitter. I was like, listen, my primary job is to make good art that we can build a career around because if the art's not good, we have, there's no reason for us to be here doing this. So I was like, I need to be focused on making quality art that I'm proud of. You need to do the rest. So I deleted all my socials and then the few that I have left, she has the password to. I don't have the password to. I don't even have the app on my phone. I still have access to my email, but she checks my email for me. You know, she takes all the phone calls. She books all the flights. She does all of the logistics stuff. So that I can, you know, rake myself across the coals and go crazy making the music and doing the posters and the visuals and, you know, doing all the creative side. It took me a while to be able to let go of that because I'm very like, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. I like to be in the driver's seat of everything so I can make sure it gets done the way I want. I know everybody's relationship with their manager is different. Luckily, my manager is also one of my best friends and she's somebody that... I would have the same relationship with her even if we didn't work together because we just are very, very close. And so I do trust her with my life and my career and my Instagram password (laughs) and everything that's ever been dear to me. That's awesome. What has your experience been with like having teams and whatnot on like the music side? Right now I don't have a manager, but I feel like there's always someone that I'm relying on uh normally it comes in phases where it will be like uh you know how it is like when people think of Ethel Kane they think of you right and it's the same with with Wickerface for me they don't associate it with other people but I do normally try and have someone else around just to bounce ideas off of or yeah. ideally it's a person who is uh on top of things maybe a little bit more than I am logistically so that even if they're not acting as my manager, they are there to remind me that I have a show in a week or something like that. I had a, an actual manager for two years. Contract ran out and uh, it was just a, a personality personality clash. You know what I mean? Right. I'm sure he'd be like a great manager for other people and it just like wasn't in the cards for us. And recently since then, but especially over the past year or so, I've just been relying on run for cover <laughs> to to help me. I'm sure they love playing the role of managers without getting like a manager's cut. But like, <laughs> you know, there's also the sense that they want to see me do well because I'm one of their artists, right? So right. they've been like super, really, really valuable as resources there logistically. And it helps creatively too because they're able to present options for me and, and ideas for me that with their resources as a label, they're able to, to you know, allow me to do that. I wouldn't be able to do that stuff on my own. Right. Like, for example, like we had like a comic book come out like with the last vinyl that I did. It was like an insert, right? And like, that's a cool idea. And if I didn't have them, I would have no idea how to make that happen. From paying the artist to figuring out the, you know, the 
how to put a comic book in a record before the record is sealed. But I need a manager too. Um, aside from that, I do everything myself. I don't tour that often. So that is kind of, that's not so bad. And when I do tour, I have a, a team of people that I'm usually relying on. Like, a, you know, when I go to Europe, I have the same tour manager every time and I have a great relationship with him. Aside from that, I, I just kind of do everything um, at home, you know? Yeah. It's so stressful sometimes to have so much on your plate, but as I'm sure we're probably the same vein of neurotic when it comes to our careers, it's, it is nice to be in control and know what's going on with what you're doing and like be aware from the get-go and not have things kind of surprised or like kind of sprung on you. I just like to know what's going on with my career. I don't ever like to kind of be caught off guard. And half the time, I don't even listen when my manager's talking about dates because I'm like, I know that they're organized and I'll like show up whenever I'm, I need to show up. <laughs> We've had a lot of opportunities to kind of like expand and do this and that. But I'm like, I love where my career is at right now. I love kind of the way things are going. I have a team total of probably about including internationally. I have less than 10 people on my team, like probably about seven or eight. I know all of them very well. We all have a group chat. We all talk about everything like right up front. I've never been in the major label system, so I, I can't actually speak to how it truly works. But I just feel like the the bigger your team gets and the, the further... Because like when you're the artist, you know, you are the center, you're the core, you are the, the thing from which it radiates out from. And the further it has to go, I fear the easier it is for whatever is pure and coming from you starts to kind of, it could get distorted or muddled or it's like a game of telephone. I just like knowing that I'm able to directly reach and touch everybody that works with me. And we all have a great personal relationship on top of professional. I just like to make sure that, you know, this train is always headed to the place that I initially wanted it to go. and We don't get kind of derailed or sidetracked and suddenly I wake up and I'm like, oh, we're supposed to be going here and we're a thousand miles away. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. Distro Lock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, 
grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. I was going to ask you how, because I, I always find myself asking myself this, whenever you started, you definitely had some kind of an aspiration or a goal or a thing that you saw going for yourself and, you know, maybe predictions. Like, how do you find that's changed now? And do you find anything is the kind of similar to what you were looking for? And what do you think has changed over the years? Like you're kind of where you were aiming and going for I consider like Tiger's Jaw, like the when when we started Tiger's Jaw, for that to be the first like serious thing I did with music, and uh, what we were sixteen or seventeen when that started, and I was in that band until I was twenty three. Even after I left that band, I never considered music as like a viable career option or anything like that. I knew that there were struggling artists and I knew that there were like mega successful artists, right? And I didn't think that there was any middle ground, any right. sort of way to be like a like a upper middle class musician, right? <laughs> right. And now I realize like, oh, that is a thing. It doesn't have to be upper middle class. It can just be middle class. Or... Yeah, we live in the suburbs of the music industry. Right, exactly, though. It is that, right? Like, like we're, you know, making the same amount of money that we would at like a, like a fine office job, right? Right, right. I never understood that that was a thing. And it wasn't until I, I had my first manager in about 2017 and he outlined, I mean, I have to thank him for this, like immensely, but he just outlined how it was possible, you know, like, uh, I, cause I was still working an office job, uh, a literal office job up until 2017. I quit in 2018 and I needed to know that, like, that there was a path to like make money and not, right. uh, you know, not sacrifice quality of life and stuff like that. And, and he uh, like outlined that for me, you know, this is what you would need to bring in a month and here's how you can do that. Um, and so now, now I'm like, I don't have to worry. Now I don't worry about whether like I, I, I'll have a career in music or anything like that, or whether it's a viable option. Now I think about it as like, what can I do to keep this going? How do I get another 20 years out of this? And then retire when I'm 50 or something like that, right. you know, ideally that. And what like I think what helps me is that I have convinced myself this is rare for me because I'm not I don't gas myself up much, but I have convinced myself that I am the best at a very specific thing that I do. Right. Like yep. I. I'm not the best singer and and I might not be like the best or like most dynamic or exciting live performer, but 
you know, there's a specific brand of lyrics that I write. And I know that like no one else, I mean, I just have to tell myself like no one else can touch me when I'm doing this. And whether that's true or not, that's how I, that kind of takes a lot of the pressure off. And if you can be the best at something, no one can take that away from you. And, you know, then it's it's just up to you to like, make the right business moves or something like that. You know what I mean? And not spend all, not spend all my money or something. I've kind of convinced myself that I'm like, as long as there is a niche demand for Ethel Kane, nobody can be a better Ethel Kane than I can. So it'll be chill. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the key. That's like, I've never, I've never a day in my life been like, I need to top the billboard charts and I need to win a Grammy and I need to do all this. It's, I think the second you start aiming for that, it's like, I feel like you're just going to be so miserable, but I'm, I, I just, I've decided like, if I can make enough money to like pay my rent and you know, I live, I literally live in student housing right now in Pittsburgh, like where all the college kids live. I, I, I live so cheap. I'm like, if I can put food on my table and have enough money to like buy myself some nice things that I want every now and then and pay my rent and, you know, fix my truck when it fucks up. Like, then that's good. I I won. I'm successful. And, you know, if I can do a merch drop every now and then and then maybe play a couple shows per year and then make enough from streaming from my music, which God knows they don't pay us enough for streaming. But, you know, all those things together. Mm-hmm. Um, if If I can sustain my quiet, comfortable little lifestyle, then... There you go. The suburbs of the music industry is where I will live and die. I'm hoping and praying and fingers crossed major labels will start to die out because real artists who create from their heart and do everything themselves now with the Internet and, you know, distribution services that are available to us and, the you know, they, they make cheap interfaces, cheap microphones, you know, you can crack Ableton or Logic and record like you can do whatever you have to. You can make uh, a piece of art and an album that you're proud of and, and, and put it on the internet and completely bypass the labels and you can own your masters and you can make all your streaming money and you can have a you know upper middle class career in music without ever even having to sign your life away on the dotted line. And I really think it's we're going to see a new kind of rising in the next decade, specifically now that I think a lot of, um, I think the the major labels are starting to shoot themselves in the foot with some things. I think we're about to see a lot of artists start being able to find successful middle ground careers because they have the tools available to them to build a career without having to outsource to a major label that's going to like suck the life out of them. I had like major label interest <laughs> like before I signed with Run For Cover. And what turned me off most was that they were coming to me about a deal. This is, again, six years ago, seven years ago. And that was enough for me to be like, oh, no, like, you guys are struggling. You need me. me. Yeah. Yeah, you need me. (laughs) Like, that's not good. I think every artist who finds even mild success has a brush with, you know, majors. Like, we were definitely talking to them for a minute, but... You know, we were kind of only talking to them for desperation out of money because, you know, a tour was very, very hard for me physically and it still is. And I, it probably always will be in some capacity. I just don't have that kind of stamina or energy to tour like some artists do. 
And so we were talking at the very end of tour with some labels about, you know, what is this going to look like? Like, will you give us a big advance so I can stop touring and I can just work on art and have the money? Yeah, I value nothing more than my creative freedom and whatever. And so within like a month, we were like, yeah, we're not doing that. Even if touring isn't viable, we'll find another way to make money. But I think owning your masters and having kind of that creative freedom that you would have at like a small indie label or when you're just independent is so much more valuable than a major because, I mean, at least for artists like us, you know, a, a label could give us $10 million, but if we don't have the ability to make something as intrinsically us to the finest detail that we want it to be, then our artistry is disrupted and we're not going to find success because we're not putting out a piece of work that is genuine to us. So even with $10 million, we're not going to find success because we're creating something that's ingenuine because of creative interference from a label. So I think that that kind of freedom is much more valuable in the long run than even $10 million would be. I'm sure you've come across people who want to be a musician or they want to be known as a musician or something like that and maybe segue that into acting or something like that, right? And the art aspect of it isn't really at the forefront, you know? Yeah. Like maybe they make music and maybe, but really like what is, is driving it is a, a big management team and a big marketing budget and like some dance lessons or something. I think it's just like a whole nother like species of artists. And honestly, like it's like, Good for you if you want to be famous and music is your vehicle or whatever, but you really just want a lot of money and you want to live in L.A. or somewhere nice and you want to, like, go for it. Everybody's, like, life path is viable and if you want to be a celebrity, like, go for it. Like, I wish you the best, but it's just so far from the mindset that I want to have that I'm like... I wish you the best. I have no interest in having a relationship with you. I don't want to work with you. I don't want to be friends with you. We <laughs> obviously would not be compatible because you want the opposite of what I want. There's been so many situations where we've had people reach out and be like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? It would get good press. It would be like, think about how it would go viral. This And I'm like, you are straight up admitting to me you want to do this because it would get good press or because you think it would go viral on TikTok. Like what the actual hell do you think... I'm doing here. I'm like, yeah. this is so not... And that's kind of why I I love still living in just like a random city where I want to go. Like Pittsburgh is a big city for me, but, you know, used to be. I'm like, I live in the middle of nowhere. I don't, I don't have to interact with these people. I don't even have my socials logged into my phone. I don't see it. I don't hear it. I don't think about it. I tell... Marley, I tell my manager, I'm like, you you know me. Like, don't even tell me yeah. when someone DMs me because I don't care. Like, I just... that's That's not... The goal, I, I only like to work with artists who I'm creatively inspired by or who are like genuinely just my friends before anything and who I think that we could make good music together and I think we could make something special or just like having fun with a friend of mine in the studio and fucking around. Like art to me is so sacred and special and it is literally my lifeblood and I, I would never want to kind of bastardize it by doing something f that isn't, putting it first. Yeah, should we name names? No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's name drop everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, I um No, I'm no stranger to talking mad shit with my team um, every now and then. But, 
you know sometimes it's just funny sometimes people come at you and you're like be so fucking for real like I know. like why why like why me like why do you think me of all people was the, the person to ask that to like like we just we get the most insane collab requests and i'm just like do you have any yeah. like any gauge on who you're talking to i tell marley all the time i'm like one of these days i'm just going to do a culling and i'm going to put out a two hour long instrumental ambient loop that's like a like a drone sound and i'm gonna be like here's my new album and i'm gonna be like okay go the fuck away and whatever all these people who are like looking for tiktok sound bites i'm like (laughs) no get away from me you're gonna do that and people are gonna love it and then some, you know, there's going to be some sort of like noisy ambient renaissance in pop music. And <laughs> well, hey, if that happened, yeah. I would love that. No, I um, Yeah, it's funny. I I'm honestly embarrassed sometimes at myself about how much time I dwell on like my public image and the way that I'm being perceived online and how I go for one thing and it always winds up as being something else. It's almost like narcissistic to dwell on your own public image that much. But then it's also like, you know, as an artist, like your perception and your image, it it is a huge part of like the way that you are, like the way that you live as an artist, you know, the way that you're perceived as an artist leads to the kind of fans that you get and the kind of fans that you get completely dictate the way that your live experience goes and the way that your shows are and the way that, you know, your comments on the internet and the kind of way that you are being consumed as an artist. And unless you are completely off grid, not on the internet, not playing shows, not interacting or encountering a single person who knows you as an artist ever you know that that kind of the culture around you and your fan base and the way that they perceive you both your fans and people who aren't your fans the way that you are being consumed as an artist it does get back to you and it it does kind of it's this weird like three-way like you're looking at somebody else looking at you and then you're like what is this funhouse mirror (laughs) bullshit like it's it's so bizarre sometimes when you think of yourself as one thing being something and then you realize that everybody else thinks you're something completely different and you're just like oh so that's what we're doing being a musician is so weird sometimes i think it's weird for us as like people in i don't want to say like internet music because like we're but, not but, but we are right like essentially like we're you know post a certain year and we got popular on the internet largely yeah and i think what's so weird about that especially with us being like solo artists like we you know we work with other people but when people think of ethel kane it's your face thing, yeah right same with we're me, like we're a persona face. yeah we're we're personas and we are the thing like we are you know wicker phase for years, I just thought, like, Wiccafaze was the songs. You know, it's just the songs. And then it took me a while to realize, oh, no, it's everything. It's it's my face. It's the merch. It's the videos. Yep. It's a whole experience, at least for a certain subset of hardcore fans. You know what I mean? Like, people who subscribe to Wiccafaze or Ethel Kane rather than just casual listeners or something like that. People who are all in on us. It is the whole thing. And I mean, I, I've felt super frustrated. It's still not the exact shape that I want it to, to yep. be. And then also I'm like, well, okay, then good. That, you know, I have another 10 years to figure that out. Like that's what I'll do for the next couple of years or something is really work on course correction and getting it to, to where I want it to be. And then I remind myself like, 
you know, it's good that I care about this. And if I didn't care about how I was perceived or something, then like, or like what the image of what a phase was or the outward presentation of it. If I didn't care about that, then really like maybe I would have lost, like that's a sign that I lost my passion for this. Yeah. No, I always say, I'm like, if I ever stop caring how people are perceiving Ethel Kane, it's because I gave up on the story. I gave up on the ethos. I get upset when people misinterpret my art. I get upset whenever they like don't get what I'm trying to say. But I get upset because I care so much about it that I'm like, <laughs> I, like it's my whole life. It's everything I care about. And I, I, I've, I've come to the realization that like you love a Wicca phase that nobody else will ever know or love. And I love... And I'm a fan of an Ethel Kane that nobody else will ever understand or or love. Like, I kind of started to realize that when I was like, I would see people talk about like, you know, eras mm-hmm. of your music, like like the Preacher's Daughter era. And then they would be like, oh, 2022 was the Preacher's Daughter era. It was so good. And I'm like, 2018 <laughs> was the Preacher's Daughter era for us because, you know, the era for us is when mm-hmm. we're making it. And for everyone else, it's after it comes out. And it's just we will always love a fully authentic, different, completely different version of our artistry. And every artist is the same way. You know, every person on this planet knows a version of themselves that no one else will ever know. And it's exciting and kind of fun and personal, but it also is a little isolating and lonely sometimes and a little disjointed. I did the thing when the album came out. I read all the comments. I read all the reviews. I looked at all, I looked at everything. I I, I com- completely engaged with the fan reaction. And then I was like, now I just want to enjoy it for myself. I want to listen to my own music and enjoy it as creator and listener and consumer and and fully live in this world that I've created and enjoy it. And I'm like, everybody else can have their their interpretations. I can't stop that. People will take what you've given them and then they will make it themselves. We do it. We do it with all of our inspirations. We take art from someone who came before us, interpret it in our, our own way, and then turn around and make our art from it. And our fans might not be making art further but they're definitely taking what we've created and interpreting it in a way that means something to them it's kind of valid on both sides yeah it's valid they interpret it one way and it's valid that i get absolutely insane when i think they get it wrong and that's kind of just the two sides of the coin but um i've just kind of decided that the best way to deal with it is to not engage with it at the end of the day it is just so fun to create something from that like the wellspring inside of you Everything you see, everything you touch, it it translates into something that is this like palpable creativity that is like never ending inside of you. And it is I just love to bask in that and create as much as I can. And it's why I don't think I could ever stop doing this. No, I don't think I can either. I think I'm like fully addicted to it. Yeah. You know, I am the thing, you know. Yeah. I am the thing. I like, am this, the thing. It's me. It's like, you know, and, and and in reverse, like the thing is me. So I can't uh, really separate myself from it. If someone was to ask me like what the best Wikipedia song is, I would be like, oh, it's this uh, half of a verse that it, it, I haven't finished yet. Um, yep. That will come out, you know, next September or something like that. September of 2024. Like you said, like, we're, you and I, are, artists in general, are are generally a couple years ahead of of what gets presented to the public. Yeah, that's the fun part. It's, it's the most it's, fun part. While they're falling in love with like whatever you just put out, you're 
like you've already kind of fallen out of love with it in a way because it's been done for you. And now it's just a bunch of files that have been delivered and you're on to the next thing. I just finished my my next project and it will come out whenever it comes out. Um, you know, we're we're working on it now, but we have a good period of time before that project even comes out. And I'm already in the beginning stages of the next project and like falling in love with it and conceptualizing it and getting ready to start it. So it's like you can never love the same you that everyone else loves at the same time. I love to go back and find an old song of mine that I made and be like, God, this was good. And Me then too. take whatever, <laughs> like take whatever nugget inspired that song and then chew on it again for like another song. And it's it's just so funny because it's like you have all these weird little children that you just like have built a family out of. And you're like, sometimes I forget some of you exist. And it's like yeah. fun to rediscover a a thing that you did and be like, whoa, I was really onto something with that one. Let me, let me try that again, but like flip it, reverse it and chop it and screw it. I used to fear that being an artist, I was like, how do I do this in the most non-pretentious way possible? But now I'm like, I'm an artist. That's my career path. I'm like, I'm going to be pretentious (laughs) and I'm going to talk about myself. Like I'm the most esoteric goddamn thing on the planet and I'm going to have fun and lean into it. Um, And yeah, leaning into it has drastically improved my experience. It took me like way too long to lean in. But now that I have, I'm there's no shortage of like avenues I, I want to explore. Well, it was it was so nice chatting with you. Hopefully I'll see you. You are still in Pennsylvania, right? Uh, yeah, I just um, I just uh, had an offer accepted on a house in New York, uh, like in New Ooh. York State. Um, so if all goes well there, I'll be I'll be yeah. in, in New York State in like next month. Well, I'm still pretty close, so I'll have to come visit whenever. That's all right. Yes, you will. Sure, we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Hayden and Hedonia, a.k.a. Ethel Kane, and Adam McKelvey, a.k.a. Wiccafaze Springs Eternal, for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform, and check out all the other podcasts in our ever-expanding network. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.